Happy Thursday, everyone. My name is Irene Cronavilla, and I am your host, your favorite host, and the only host of the podcast series, You Learn Something New Every Day. And in this episode, I will be explaining the research that I have been doing at my biochemistry lab, Brewing Beer. It's about biochemistry and beer. Who wouldn't want to know about that? And don't worry, hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll understand how to brew beer, or at least somewhat know the process. So let's get right into it. What is biochemistry and beer research and why does it matter? In 2019, a report was made on the beer consumption in the US and it was found that approximately 6.165 million gallons were consumed. That's crazy. A lot of people like to drink beer, but have you ever thought about how it's made? There's so much that goes into the brewing process, but let me explain the basics first. There are over 50 different types of beers and there are even more ways to categorize them. You can categorize them by flavor, by type, by color, by bitterness, by ingredients, and other factors that you can imagine. What is a beer style? I'll be using a lot of language geared towards brewing beer. So let me explain a few of these definitions first. So beer style, beer styles are how we classify different types of beers. This classification of beers is based on how the beer is made, the process, the ingredients, fermentation methods, and even the history or place of origin of the beer. When you bring all these factors together, you end up with a beer style. The most common and broad category of beer are by yeast and fermentation. You may be familiar with these. You have the owls, which are top fermenting, or lager, which are the bottom fermenting. Now that we understand what beer styles are, it's important to know that beer styles can have similar flavoring. The process in which a beer is made affects the flavor. This is why many mainstream beers like Budweiser, Miller, generally have a similar taste, which is light, crisp, or crushable. They're all the same style of beer, made in a similar method with similar ingredients, and are classified as pale or light laggers. The beer styles are one way to categorize and organize the many types of beers. Other examples of popular beer styles are IPAs, Amber Owls, or Sour Owls. All these three are beer styles classified as Owls, but their flavoring makes them distinct because of the ingredients, appearance, and how they're made, which is by fermenting process. Another way to categorize beer is by flavor. And so these styles of beer should not be confused with the profiles of beer. So there's styles of beer and profiles of beer. A beer profile can be like a crisp, light, or a heavy kind of beer. Beer profiles group beer styles by their common flavors. For example, a blonde ale and a Czech Pilsner have a beer profile that is crisp and clean, but have different beer styles. One is an L and the other one is a lager. Now that we know a general background on beer, I'll tell you about my experiment. In my lab, we were assigned the task to brew a beer of our choice, including the style, flavor, bitterness, and anything else that makes up a beer. The typical steps for brewing a beer are milling, mashing, boiling, fermentation, racking or bottling, and distribution. That I will explain more later. So my team and I decided to brew a mango vanilla Belgian pale owl. I know a very long name, but you'll soon find out what we ended up naming the beer. So as any other research would do, we searched different recipes to brew a Belgian pale owl and we found one. The recipe 
didn't include, however, the mango and vanilla flavoring that we wanted, but that's normal. When you're brewing a beer, you are brewing the beer style and or profile. The extra flavoring, in this case, which is mango and vanilla, are added after you brew your beer style or profile before bottling up the beer. So this recipe calls for two malts. Malts is like a grain. Um, and if you ever like malt vinegar on your fries, I know I do, malt grain is used to make the malt vinegar. Anyways, the main malt that we used was a Belgian Pilsner malt. It's a two-row malt with the European style. Sounds pretty fancy. It has a mild, malty flavor and can be used in all types of beers. And then our second malt was a caramel malt. This is of American origin and has a sweet mild car- caramel flavor. I like to say caramel. Some people say caramel. I say caramel. Anyways, the recipe also called for two hops. The first hop was a pearl hop, which is a cross between Northern Brewer and ready guys 63 slash 5 slash 27 m that's just another like type of hop you don't need to know what the numbers mean or what the m means it's just a cross hop so this hop is known for adding traditional german like quality to beer we have a lot of european in this beer and so the second hop that we used was a cascade hop which has floral citrus and grapefruit tone i think this will really go well with the mango that we're using so a few classic and common types of hops in craft brewing is a cascade hop. Now we're going to get to how we made our beer. And so just a little reference before I get into that. We ended up naming the beer Cut Twice, Measure Once because we had to brew it two times. Why do you ask? Well, funny story. Our professor knocked over our first beer after it was chilling. And when I tell you about the chilling, I'll remind you again when that happened. You'll also feel the same frustrations. But... You also understand that mistakes happen. If there aren't many mistakes, what is science? You have to make mistakes and you have to learn to accept them. So it was a very, it's a very funny story to tell now. (laughs) Anyways, we followed along our chosen recipe that had unique temperatures and times important to the brewing process. But that'll take me an hour and we do not have that time. So instead, I will explain to you the general brewing process. Generally speaking, if you want to brew a beer, you'll have to follow the same brewing process. But your ingredients, times, and temperatures, that's what makes your beer different. And so in this process, the first step is milling. Milling is this process of crushing whole grain malt with a milk. Barley is the most common malt used. Wheat and rye are the two other common malted grains as well. This is important because milling creates the necessary surface area on the malted grain's endosperm. What is endosperm, Irene? Endosperm is a part of a seed that contains starch with protein and other nutrients. We want that stuff for our beer. This is what makes beer, beer. We cannot make alcohol without these starches and proteins and nutrients. This is very important for the next step, mashing. And right before I talk about mashing, I want to mention that in our lab, we did not mill our own grains. Um, instead, we bought our malt and other ingredients at Adventures in Home Brewing, which is located in Arbor, Michigan. So once we got those, we are ready for our next step, mashing. And this next step, mashing is a process of mixing the milled malt with very hot water. Think of it like making oatmeal in the morning. And so the water temperature can range between 148 to 158 degrees Fahrenheit. 
And during this stage, the malted grain, as opposed to the unmalted grain, is very important. That distinction needs to be made. Um, malted grain has gone through a controlled germination stage, which breaks down the endosperm and creates enzymes. Again, enzymes are very important when creating beer. We want enzymes. So when the malt is in hot water at a very specific temperature, those enzymes become activated. And when they're activated, they convert those starches in the endosperm into sugars, which is called maltose, and dextrins. You can think about dextrins like mouthfeel. And these maltose and dextrins become the body of the beer. This mash usually takes between 30 to 120 minutes, and depending on the temperature and times of enzyme working. In other words, make sure you're following your recipe. So after we have finished mashing, mashing, we are separating the liquid from the grain in the tub. If you were at a brewing company, they use kegs, but we do not have kegs. We're a lab, so we had to use our tubs. Question, what do we do with the grain? Answer, you can use it for your livestock or you can put it in your garden. Remember guys, be resourceful. So now we're ready for the next step, which is boiling. Before I get into it, make sure you are following lab protocols. Make sure you're wearing like heat gloves because the temperature of the water can get really hot. And so in this process of boiling, the tub of liquid for mashing is known as wort, which contains all the sugars we want to brew beer. And so we want to boil the wort in this process because it's responsible to, for two main things. The first one is to pasteurize the wort to make safe beer that can be consumed. The second is to add hops, or some brewers use ginger or molasses. Hops are flowers or cones of a plant called Humulus lupulus. So hops keep the beer fresh and longer. We want hops. They also bring a lot of flavor to it too. And we want to be careful in this set because the longer the hops are boiled in the wort, the bitterness of the beer increases. And we don't want a bitter beer. Unless you like bitter beer, no shame. Typically, a wort is boiled for 60 to 90 minutes. Now we're ready for our next step, fermentation, which I think is most people's favorite step, and you'll find out why soon. So after boiling is complete, it is time to move the wort into a fermenter and add yeast to it. Mmm. So first, the wort must be cooled because the yeast is a living organism, so it's very picky about the temperature of the environment that it lives in. So we want to make sure that it's very cool and chill. And so to speed up the process of cooling, because we boiled the wort in very high temperatures, you can use a chiller. And this is the part where our beer pot of beer was knocked over, which is very sad. So if you can imagine the amount of time to get to the fermentation step, which is closer towards the end, and how sad it was to see that. But it's okay. We didn't knock it over on the second time, which is good. And so once the liquid is cooled, the liquid is transferred to your fermenter where yeast is added. So everything is sterile at this point. This step is the most important step, fermentation step, is the most important step to make sure that you are using sterile techniques because everything here and after, it could be consumed. So you want to make sure that everything that the beer will touch is sterile. Now, 
We placed the fermenter in a dark, cool place where the yeast will start to feed on the sugars that was created in the mesh and turn them into alcohol and carbon dioxide. This is where the ethanol is made, guys. This is where the alcohol is made. This is the central step where alcohol and the beer is made. So this usually takes four to six days for brewing companies. But since we're homemade brewers in the lab, this is a usually a three-week process. So we're almost done, guys. Hang in. The next step is racking, or I like to call bottling. At traditional brewing companies, after the beer is brewed, like fermented, the beer will either be filtered or directly transferred into what is called a bright tank. This is where the beer is carbonated and kept for either kegging, bottling, canning, or barrels, which barrels are used for aging the beer. And then they make their own analysis of the beer to make sure that it's safe to consume and determine its content. But we're not a brewing company. We're simply a lab. So we bottled our beers in sterile glass beer bottles. Again, reminder, anything that the beer will touch, we make to make sure that it's sterile. So we sterilized these beer bottles. We went back to our lab and made our own analysis that I'll explain a little later. So on this last step is distribution. This one's easy. You send the beer out to consumers and you can sell your beer to bars and restaurants or grocery and convenience stores. In our case, we had a beer test tasting, which I think was pretty awesome. And so we had consumers, well, the consumers were faculty professors and even one of the owners of the Albion Malleable Brewing Company, which I think is pretty awesome. And so this whole process of distribution can take about two weeks for an L and six weeks or more for a lager. But for us, it only took us like two days. <laughs> and so... For our analysis in the lab, we performed a variety of biochemical analysis on our beer. I mentioned the acronyms of the instruments and process we use, but it matters most to know why we use it. So don't worry. You don't need a PhD in biochemistry to understand the instruments. You just need to know why it's important to do, to do so. And so we used um, a gas chromatography mass spectroscopy to figure out our alcohol content percentage. And we use a polymerase chain reaction to identify different strains of brewing yeast. And so by doing this, we use genetic fingerprinting, which is what PCR is. And so this is an advantage to brewers since they can always identify their strains, look for contamination, and make sure that the yeast is true to what the recipe calls for. So this is a very important step, right? We don't want to contaminate our, our yeast and we don't want consumers to drink contaminated yeast. And so we use PCR to do so. But then we use a titration to figure out the acidity of the decarbonated beer. I mentioned decarbonated beer. We want the baseline, the acidity of the baseline beer. So usually what happens is carbonated beer calls for a higher acidic beer. And so we want the baseline. So what's the baseline? And so when you drink your beer that's carbonated, you'll know that you're drinking a higher acidic beer. So we performed a UV visible spectroscopy to determine the bitterness of beer in international bittering units, IBU. To all my beer lovers, doesn't that sound familiar? IBUs, that is the bitterness of your beer. 
And so we also did a high performance liquid chromatography, which is an HPLC, to separate, identify, and quantify the alpha and beta acids from the hops. This is important to also determine the bitterness of the beer. Depending on the alpha and beta acids in the hops, that could also contribute to the bitterness of the beer. And so our results were, we found that our beer contained a 3.17% alcohol content percentage, which I think is pretty great. And it had a pH of 4.6. And remember, guys, this is just a decarbonated beer. And so if you drink the beer, it would be lower pH and a higher acidity. So the total acidity of our beer was about 5%, which is not bad. And our yeast was definitely our yeast. No contamination. Our beer is safe to consume. Great. That's what we want. So you're probably wondering, what are the implications? Why is this important? So what did we learn? We learned how to brew beer the way we want it to taste. And even though we had a set plan on how we wanted our beer to taste, the final product could be different as we learned that there are so many factors in brewing beer. This can affect your final product. Because there are a plethora of ways of, to change your beer, you can do what you like. You just have to make sure you're following it precisely. So if you want your beer to have a high alcohol content, you want to make sure that most of the starches from the malt are broken down, are broken down <laughs> by following the temperatures precisely. So this gives enough space for sugars to ferment into alcohol. Also, if you have too high of a temperature, that can ruin your beer. But if you have too low, it cannot denature all those proteins, all those good stuff, all the sugars that you want to make the alcohol. If you want a flavorful beer, you want to make sure that you did not let the hops overboil. And you want to make sure that you're not putting in the hops in too late and too early. You have to make them, place them in at the right time. So... Enough about beer, I know. If we could talk about beer all day long, we can do that. But how does this relate to biochemistry? Well, it may have not sounded like it, but we use a lot of biochemistry methods. Even when we're not making, we were not making our beer analysis, even during the brewing process, we even considered biochemistry methods. It's like sterilization. So a lot of the biochemical techniques we use for our beer analysis they're also commonly used to do cancer research. Wow, so crazy. You're brewing beer and you know some techniques to do cancer research? Two different distinct areas. I think it's crazy. Another thing to think about, another example is if you want to grow bacteria and see if a certain antibody worked, you can do a bacterial transformation and run a PCR. We ran a PCR to determine whether our yeast was contaminated, whether our yeast was the yeast strain that we wanted. Wow, amazing. You could do antibody work after brewing beer. And so, as I mentioned earlier, sterile techniques that we use during our brewing process, this can be mimicked when you have to handle cancer cells. You want to make sure that you're being sterile when you handle cancer cells because you do want, not want to expose it to yourself and to other surfaces and to other people because it's cancer cells. You do not want that. So you had to practice sterile techniques. Can you believe that? Brewing beer, you just did a lot about chemistry techniques. Wow. Who would have thought? 
And that concludes our first episode with Irene Corona Avila, your host, your favorite host, and your only host for the podcast series. You learn something new every day. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you learned something about beer and how that relates to biochemistry. Audience, if you're a researcher or no researcher who would like to present a project on this podcast, contact me. My email is ic10 at albion.edu. I'll spell it out. I-C-10 at sign. A as in apple, L as in laugh, B as in bird, I as in Irene, O as in orange, N as in never, dot E-D-U. Don't forget to learn something new every day. See you next Thursday.